Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for all those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pierce. Policy Forum Pod is produced by PolicyForum.net, based at Crawford School of Public Policy, Asian Pacific's leading graduate policy school. And if you have plans to take up a policy-facing role in the future, then we highly recommend you check out our degrees and short courses at crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study. Now, the last few weeks haven't been easy on any of us. Like many of our listeners, I'm working from home at the moment and I am recording this episode in accordance with social distancing rules from my home office. From the outset, I want to say that we at Policy Forum are committed to continuing all of our podcasts, though like everyone, we've had to be flexible. We'll be recording remotely. We're doing everything we can to ensure our sound quality is as high as possible, but please do bear with us. Uh, for example, to improve the sound quality, uh, to paint you a bit of a visual picture, today I have pulled a giant blanket over my head, so that's where I am right now. I'm under a blanket with my microphone and my computer to record another episode of Policy Forum Pod to hopefully keep you informed during what is a very difficult time. Now, whilst the number of COVID-19 infections or deaths in Australia haven't yet reached the grim heights that we see in some of the worst affected countries, everyone is starting to feel the toll of the coronavirus. Public life has ground to a halt, many people have lost their jobs, and anxiety about what lies ahead is high. The social outlets many of us relied on have been necessarily curtailed, and we're facing a 24-hour news cycle that can make it really difficult to switch off. All of this can take an enormous toll on our mental health. At the beginning of this week, Dr. John Allen, the president of the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists, said that there are the psychological impacts of public health measures to contain the virus, which can exacerbate pre-existing anxiety and other mental health conditions and can lead to increases in distress, symptoms and relapse into mental health. So today on the podcast, we want to ask, what can policymakers do to ease the impact of COVID-19's flow-on effects on people's mental health. And in the spirit of social distancing, we've moved our recordings online, and the two experts that I'm talking to today are joining us remotely from the safety of their own homes. First is Dr. Sebastian Rosenberg. He's been on the pod before, of course. He was the head of the Mental Health Policy Unit at the ANU Centre for Mental Health Research. And with him is Professor Luis Salvador Carula, who is the head of the Centre for Mental Health Research here at the ANU. And he was previously an advisor to the Government of Catalonia in Spain, the Spanish Ministry of Health, the European Commission and the World Health Organization. 
So welcome, Sebastian and Lewis. It's great to have you with us today. So hello, Sebastian. Uh, good afternoon. And hello, Lewis. Hello. How are you doing? Very well. Now, before we get into the discussion, let me start by asking, how are you both doing? Are you working entirely from home at the moment? Um, well, I, um, um, at ANU, uh, those above uh, 60 years old were requested to work from home last Friday. So I've been um, in uh, self-isolation with my wife and working from home since then. And what about you, Sebastian? And I, I'm not quite 60. I'm only 53. Uh, so theoretically, I could have gone into ANU to do work, I think, until today when notification came that they uh, that the university would really prefer to have people uh, working remotely. Um, so I, I have been working remotely for a little while, and I can perhaps explain my tale of woe uh, to you uh, later or maybe over a beer. And of course, thousands of us us Australians are now working from home and some of them are even being forced to self-isolate for multiple weeks. Lewis, let me ask you, what is COVID-19 doing to uh, our sort of collective mental health? Uh, Well, I I think it's going to have a very significant impact. And um, something that is critical is uh, just understanding and and um, analyzing what is happening in other countries. Um, I am uh, working closely with Italian and Spanish colleagues and um, colleagues all over Europe, and you can see to what extent uh, the impact of COVID in, in mental health is going to be very significant. Now, what about the the mental health of vulnerable groups. I mean, how how is this crisis affecting those? Perhaps I could put that to you, Sebastian. Sure. So, look, um, I think the first thing to say is that the mental health system in Australia is uh, has been reviewed many times uh, by many separate statutory inquiries. I think there were 32 separate inquiries between 2006 and 2012 alone. And what these statutory inquiries generally find is that the mental health system is in crisis. And in that respect, uh, what they generally find is that people have difficulty getting access to any care, and then they uh, often have difficulty getting access to care um, if they don't live in a city. And uh, they also have difficulty finding access to uh, quality care. So uh, the, the word which is generally used in these inquiries to describe mental health in Australia is that we are in a crisis. Now, this is the environment in which COVID-19 arrives. So it is not a robust foundation. It is a, I think there, it is a system which could be characterised largely as broken. So uh, what that means is that you already find uh, particular groups in the community, or many groups in the community, not necessarily just vulnerable groups, but but many groups uh, are struggling to get access to affordable, uh, equitable, quality mental health care already. So we know that um, mental health care and the need for mental health services um, mirrors to a large extent the uh, economic uh, situation facing the country. We know that there have been peaks before during the Great Depression and so on. 
Uh, and we know that this relates not just to mental illness, but also to issues like suicidality. And um, clearly, this is going to be an issue that we're going to face. So um, groups that uh, and people who are already vulnerable, already find it difficult to find good care. And now we're going to have uh, new groups of people, some of whom are rightly, justifiably, just anxious about COVID and others that will have uh, material concerns based on the fact that they are newly unemployed, that they are facing mortgage stress, housing pressure and so on, that will need to be uh, cared for in, in, a, in a variety of ways. And uh, to be fair, I think uh, Prime Minister Scott Morrison started to allude to that in some of his recent discussions where he was really talking about uh, the need for us to, to, to look after not just the economic health and the physical health, but also the mental health of the population. So, I mean, it's, it sounds to me, like you're saying there, Sebastian, we went into this in crisis mode when it comes to mental health, and now we've got a, a, a very serious public health crisis on top of that. How do policymakers, how do the government go about getting enough capacity to deal with the sort of increased number of people that are going to be needing support? I've been trying to reflect on this a little bit because it's not an easy question to answer. What I would say is I think that um, there is a real limit to the extent to which we can use or just expand existing structures. So, for example, I, I think the idea about shifting to permit telehealth is welcome and, uh, and very sensible. However, uh, I really am afraid that the level of need in the community is going to be beyond um, the capacity of our workforce and our service system as they are currently structured to meet the level of, of demand. And so I think now is the time for us to really start to think in a in a in a enduring way and in a significant way about what it is we need to do to create new ways of getting access to care. So here we start talking not just about access to clinical services in a face-to-face way, but also about access to technologies. We also need to be thinking about uh, really emphasising for the first time in Australia, I submit, um, you know, what, what is the role of psychosocial services and support? So not just thinking about health professionals and, 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 you know, uh, and medications, but in fact thinking about this more holistically. And that's the first time this has really been done, despite the fact that this has been called for for many years in Australia in mental health. In fact, our service system has relied very much on medications and health professionals. And those two answers alone will be, they were inadequate and they'll be even more inadequate now. Lewis, I wonder if I could turn to you and get uh, your perspective on what this issue looks like internationally. Obviously, uh, public health professionals all around the world are scrambling to deal with the COVID crisis. They're scrambling to get public messaging out there. They're scrambling to make sure that their health services uh, are, are up to up to scratch. Are policymakers and politicians and you know international bodies like the WHO thinking enough about mental health aspects of this crisis? I think that there are major developments going on around the world. Um, I may say that uh, uh, one of um, of the major contributions in this area uh, has been the what is called the Interagency Standing Committee, 
uh, that has released guidelines for uh, uh, mental health uh, um, support in, uh, in in crisis, and they are very good. They provide a whole analysis of the different fears, uh, the problems of stigma, um, aspects of how uh, to improve uh, a coordination of care, analysis of existing services and planning strategies. One of the uh, aspects that is very important is um, uh, the need uh, to properly assess the capacity of the system uh, to provide care. And um, we've been working at the Center for Mental Health Policy at the Visual and Decision Analytics Lab on uh, the analysis of precisely uh, what, are, what is the capacity of the system in several countries, including Australia, uh, from the point of view of availability of services, uh, the uh, capacity of these services to provide care, what is the number of beds, the number of places, and also looking at the number of full-time equivalents of professionals, not by services, but by uh, clinical units that are providing that type of care. And now uh, we are able to model um, what uh, is the impact of anything happening in the context of care um, on the capacity of the system. This type of information is critical. One of the problems we have had internationally is that um, most of the models that were looking at the COVID-19 were just based on morbidity and mortality data. And they were not taking into account the capacity of the context of the system to provide the proper care. And uh, it's when uh, you combine morbidity, the number of cases, the incidents, the number of new cases, and the uh, rates of mortality related to COVID with the capacity of the system, and you incorporate the fact that um, you should take into account also uh, the number of infections in health staff when you really start to provide models that are useful for planning, which is the critical thing now, how we plan our resources in the next weeks in the most efficient way. And do you think that policymakers are considering those aspects that you talked about, or are they just too busy scrambling to find uh, answers to the sort of unfolding uh, immediate public health crisis of making sure that there's enough beds and making sure that there's enough respirators? Well, um, there, there was a, a piece in New York Times uh, one week ago looking at the case of Italy and uh, uh, just trying to uh, take lessons from uh, the experience in, in Italy. And one of the things that is critical is what is the reaction of the policymakers, whether uh, they are able to act decisively and quickly in front of the outbreak, the, the fact that uh, the critical early days of the outbreak are uh, essential. Uh, any, any action that is taken early uh, when you have uh, over 200 and for certain over 1,000 cases, it's critical. And uh, one of the things that happened in, in, um, in Italy was a certain denial by some officials, officers that were not providing the proper 
uh, analysis of the risk that was involved in, in the COVID crisis. And uh, there was at the New York Times piece a warning of how other governments beyond Italy were in danger of following the same path and uh, repeating some familiar mistakes that we can uh, now understand better. And one critical aspect there is avoid mixed messages, avoid confusion in the uh, general population. And uh, this, is, uh, this is a pattern that unfortunately has been repeated in several countries. Now, I want to turn from the sort of global outlook to a much more personal one. People will be experiencing this crisis through their TVs, through their news outlets, through social media, and there's this kind of constant drip of information, some some of it conflicting, um, and constant updating of, of precautions and measures that people need to take in order to keep themselves safe. Sebastian, what role does this constant media exposure play in in people's mental health? Mm. Oh, look, I think that's a that's another great question. So, look, I was trying to think about this too. Uh, it seems to me as though you know, good mental health is often expressed uh, in in two ways. I suppose a sort of a sense of social connection, and and often that's at work where you are productive and you're with your friends and colleagues and you're and you're working and contributing uh, but it can be elsewhere that sense of social connection obviously with your friends uh, but also that sense of personal autonomy and being able to make decisions for yourself and I guess the issue is that you know corona affects both of these things you know it's been said that isolation is the enemy of good mental health well corona threatens us literally with isolation. And going to what uh, Lewis was saying, we, we have to acknowledge that you know, messages about how to respond have been confused. On one hand, we're told this is a massive crisis, but on the other hand, don't go hoarding. You can have 10 people at a funeral, but five at a wedding. Universities should hold face-to-face classes, uh, so should not hold face-to-face classes, but schools should. So, you know, it's a very difficult environment. I appreciate that, that people are making decisions quickly, but the kind of clear messaging uh, to try to, to create a level of certainty is uh, missing. And so this kind of uncertainty with the threat of isolation is a recipe for increased mental illness. So in my mind, you know, there's another kind of curve that we need to bend, and it's the curve of mental illness. We need to think about, you know, what's the hand washing we need to do to promote good mental health? And here I think we need to say, well, we've got to try to take opportunities to create uh, that sense of personal agency, which goes back to the autonomy thing, you know. At a time when lots of decisions are being made for us, where can we go, when, who with, and so on? How do we create a new sense of personal agency and control? And here I think we need to be thinking also about uh, opportunities to engage in social actions, things to do together. And people are already doing this online. You will have seen videos of people working together online and technology now permits many of us to connect in new and effective ways. So I'm suggesting that, in fact, what we need to be thinking about are ways to permit and encourage social cohesion at a time when corona is promoting isolation. Uh, in addition to what you were saying, Sebastian, um, Lancet uh, has published a fantastic 
um, uh, systematic review, rapid review of the literature on on pandemics. And uh, uh, this uh, review has identified the major uh, factors uh, related to uh, as stressors during a quarantine. And they um, uh, say that uh, one of them is the duration of the quarantine. Of course, this is going to be quite long. Uh, the others are the fears of infection, frustration and boredom, uh, problems with supplies, and, and one that is critical is information. If uh, there should be a balance between uh, not alarming the, the general population and providing the proper information, proper information is better. So uh, as far as the information is not confusing, it's very helpful, helpful to avoid a high level of stressors. Other uh, two factors are the financing issues. Um, um, we have to be aware that we have two crises here. One is the um, pandemics and the other is the financial crisis. So this is a very important one. And finally, uh, the other one is stigma. And uh, this is an issue where we have the double stigma um, in people who may have mental problems that uh, will have problems in sticking to the norms, in providing the proper hygiene, etc., and the stigma related to uh, COVID. Uh, finally, this Lancet paper provides a series of solutions. Uh, one of them is to give people as much information as possible. The other one is uh, to have a special focus on the health of uh, healthcare workers. Uh, the other is supplies, provide adequate supplies. Um, uh, other one is reduce boredom and increase, and increase communication. And um, I think uh, that uh, this provides a very good framework for understanding what is needed. The other aspect is the uh, positive consequences of uh, undergoing a crisis as this one. I think that um, the uh, Australia has embedded a, a very strong feeling of community, and this is important in situations like this. And um, uh, it provides the capacity of uh, altruism and cooperation that um, probably will be one of the things that we are going to see uh, throughout the crisis. Well, listeners, that sounds like a good place to take a quick breather. But we'll be back with you shortly to have a drill down a little more into some of the policy responses uh, to the COVID-19 mental health challenge. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Mark Kenny. Each week on the Democracy Sausage Pod, we serve up fresh, meaty analysis of Australia's politics and policy and chew the fat with some of the country's leading experts. It's the podcast for those who like sizzling scrutiny with just a touch of sauce. You can find Democracy Sausage on iTunes, Spotify 
or at policyforum.net slash podcasts. And welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. I'm still here with Dr. Sebastian Rosenberg and Professor Louis Salvador Carulla. So now I'd like to turn to some of those policy responses that we have seen to the mental health issues that are related to COVID-19. Sebastian, Australia is looking to have a whole of population telehealth capacity, as you mentioned, by March the 30th, which is going to include mental health, allied health and general practice. What does what does all of that mean? Will it work? Well, so what it means is that um, uh, people won't need to necessarily uh, travel to see a health professional face-to-face. They'll be able to do so uh, uh, remotely and from where they live themselves, and, and that certainly makes things easier. We know that with Australia being um, a, a big country and with the maldistribution of our workforce, our mental health workforce uh, and our health workforce more generally, uh, it can be difficult for people to to travel. And then on top of that, of course, you have restrictions about where people can travel. Some borders are closed. Uh, the advice generally is to stay put, not to go out. Uh, and so uh, telehealth brings the healthcare system to you rather than having to go to it. And look, I think that this may well uh, work to some extent in that it will create uh, new levels of access, but it is it is emblematic of the fact that we have a, a very old-fashioned approach to the way we provide healthcare and the, and the way we do that, uh, it very much suits the health professional in that the, per, the, the people generally go along to the health professional in their rooms to see them. And in fact, uh, what this does is, and, and what telehealth does is really challenge that as a modality. We actually have got to think about different ways of delivering care to people. So um, will it work? I think it will make a difference to people. But I think the nature of this crisis, uh, its breadth, the fact that it will touch people's uh, way of life, uh, the way they interact, their economic circumstances, their personal circumstances, means that, again, we need a reaction that is beyond uh, the role and remit of just health professionals. We need to be thinking about what others can contribute to that process. Uh, And here I'm talking about, again, psychosocial type support, uh, a range of people who may not be, be health professionals per se, but may be able to assist people with the increasingly difficult Uh, tasks of daily living. So are you talking there about communities sort of uh, pulling together to to support to support other members of the community? I am indeed and so you know this these kind so as Lewis was saying there is a great deal of um, altruism and volunteerism in Australia that people are willing to chip in and help and that that's always seen it was seen recently during the bushfires and so on but this the scale of this is is beyond volunteering. And with so many people caught up uh, in this dilemma, uh, it's not really practical. But we need to be thinking about um, the range of community organisations and others that are in a position to provide the types of support that can augment that provided by health professionals. And, you know, the, the, the system of community mental health support including psychosocial support, has never been properly invested in. Now is the perfect time for us to be thinking about 
the resources that need to go, not just to uh, boosting our economy and, and ameliorating the impacts of COVID on our economy, but on ameliorating the impacts of COVID on our communities. And uh, this is uh, where these organisations can play a really significant role in a way they never have. They've never been permitted to in Australia. We have seen some quite nice examples at a community level of sort of communities rallying around. I saw there's a, a great story from the UK about someone who sort of delivered uh, little leaflets through everyone in their everyone's door in their street saying if you're isolating or need some support you know here are my contact details and just tell me what you want to do and sort of communities pulling together that way Sebastian have you seen any particular examples of either community members or community organizations like you say uh, pulling together to 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 plug those gaps Yes, no, there have been the similar sorts of examples already in Australia uh, of people reaching out to neighbours, to isolated older people and so on. And, and this is the kind of thing which, which really needs to occur. But, you know, this is um, volunteerism and it is possible for uh, periods of time and so on. And I think that that's not unhelpful. But what we're talking about here is going to require a sustained and organised effort, not a... Uh, it shouldn't be left to chance or luck we should be looking in the same way Lewis is talking about a systematic approach to planning an organised response to the mental health needs of people. We need to be thinking about the similar kind of response to, if you like, the community needs of people. And at the moment, this has never been part of the way we've approached mental health in any serious way in Australia. And COVID, if it provides anything, provides an opportunity for us to recalibrate around that effort. Louis, I'd like to turn to you to ask a question about language. The World Health Organization has published some guidelines around the language related to COVID-19. They're asking people not to refer to people with the disease as COVID-19 cases or victims or the diseased uh, to reduce stigma. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, language is so important. And I think the recommendations made by WHO are really important. We have a very basic examples. We are talking about social distance. And really what it is is physical distance. Uh, we are just framing the things in uh, sometimes in not the best way. Uh, but I would like to add in relation to uh, uh, the previous Sebastian's comments that um, something that you can learn from other places are uh, of what is the role of mental health and psychiatry in particular, is the huge effort that has happened both in Italy and in Spain in uh, providing <clears throat> e-health and digital counseling. And um, there's a, something that's very important in Australia is the high development of digital technologies in mental health. <clears throat> we have some of the best platforms in the world. Unfortunately, some of these platforms are IP protected and you have uh, to access them. Uh, they are restricted, they have uh, restricted access. I think that this would be a very good opportunity to, to try to release one or two platforms that are providing uh, support, uh, guidance, um, uh, checklist and diagnosis 
or cognitive behavioral therapy in a way that they could be used by the population in, in this moment of crisis. In addition to that, this platform can allow uh, psychologists and psychiatrists to uh, support the general population and even allow retired professionals to engage in, uh, in this uh, major effort that's uh, highly needed by our society. Yeah, can I just clar- uh, come in there too, if I may? I, I just want to fully uh, back Luis's comments. I, I, again, I, I think that Australia has been a world leader in the establishment of these kinds of digital platforms. And it is remarkable to me that they have not penetrated Australia's mental health service system as much as they could have. And uh, as I say, it's not just a matter of um, people being able to access uh, these kinds of services for health professional support. I think that there is a real role to link uh, these digital platforms to a broader appreciation, a broader response uh, to to what it means to have mental health problems. So we're not just talking about managing clinical conditions, or we're not even talking about managing clinical conditions, we're talking about addressing a, a, a person's needs more holistically. And again, these platforms um, offer that kind of opportunity. Now, before we finish this discussion, I'd like to pick your brains on two more things, one which is about policymakers and one which is more about individuals. So firstly, if I can put this to you, Sebastian, to start, if policymakers want to effectively relieve the mental health burden that COVID-19 is posing and is going to pose, where's the best place to start? So I, I think the the digital area is the way to begin. I should say that I, I really feel as though we need to be, uh, often when we're talking about mental health and, and responding to mental illness, it becomes a very unhelpful blamange because you start talking about it in very general terms. And so I think it's useful for us to, to, to try to segment uh, the nature of the problem we are attempting to address. So there would be many people, justifiably, as I said at, at the beginning, uh, who would be n- newly anxious <laughs> about the circumstances and the circumstances in the world, the circumstances facing their family and so on. So uh, there is a need to address a level of anxiety, new anxiety in uh, the community. And this is, uh, if you like, mental health promotion and uh, early intervention. Uh and then there is also a need for people who will be um, finding themselves facing new uh, significant mental health problems that are associated with uh, longer periods of uh, hopelessness, helplessness, uh, depression, uh, because of things like financial stress or unemployment and so on. And again, the answers to how we address these things should be would be helpfully segmented so that we were uh, trying to address or tailor solutions to meet the needs of groups uh, usefully. But I think particularly in an environment where people are not being encouraged to travel, not to go out, then I think we have the natural place to look is to build on Australia's uh, world leadership in the establishment of digital platforms for mental health care uh, to uh, and this, I think this could be done quite quickly, and it would begin by these platforms providing 
uh, a clear uh, source of consistent messages uh, because uh, that is the wellspring from which people get a sense of autonomy and control. And Lewis, what about you? If you were advising the uh, Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, he said, I want to do something you know, to, to tackle the mental health burden that's expected from COVID-19. What would, what, what would you say to him? Where would you say that he would be best placed to start? Would it be those uh, digital platforms that Sebastian talked about there? Uh, yes, I think uh, that understanding was the workforce capacity understanding the uh, size of the problem that we will have in the coming weeks and providing a proper alternative that it should be digital. There is no other way out. And uh, just uh, also taking into account the capacity of the system to provide care uh, under these circumstances. Those are the critical things. Uh, It's not that much what is the size of... um, uh, the mobility, the new cases of the problem is understanding the capacity of our system, including uh, the digital health system, to provide appropriate care in very critical conditions. So this is one, one other thing I wanted to mention, if I could. You know, uh, I'm trying to think about placing this uh, unprecedented event in some perspective and I guess as a, as a sort of a ray of hope if you like uh, obviously Christchurch was hit by a terrible earthquake in February 2011 I think and you know the rate of access to mental health care was significantly affected by that event but maybe not in the way you think now the rate of access to care in fact increased and that's because old ways of working which were based on appointments and consultant consultation rooms and shows and no shows and so on were redundant. Now, health professionals met their clients in parks. They met wherever they could that was safe. Uh, you know, we need to be thinking about um, different ways of working, different ways of delivery uh, that understand the scale of the problem and respond in a different way. We can't expect our existing uh, workforce to operate harder, more, faster, quicker. That 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 response will be inadequate. So. Uh, I think we there are lessons elsewhere that we can draw on. Yeah, there, there is a, another thing. Sorry to interrupt you, Sebastian. Um, I I was in Christchurch at the uh, the during the aftermath of the earthquake, and one of the things that's very interesting is what is their commitment to improve uh, mental health care and care mm. for the fragile for the disabilities mm. after the earthquake. Uh, there was mm. a major development of services mm. of uh, programs after after this period, and that that is another opportunity just to think as uh, you were you started by saying that we are in a crisis uh, of mental health. Uh, we are now on a crisis on the top of another crisis, and there is mm. a window of opportunity to really think in uh, in the service provision in the way we have to face that and find uh, better alternatives as the ones we have now. Well, let's finish this off by bringing it from a policy level down to a personal level. Could I get you both to give us your three top tips on how individuals can best cope with the mental health impacts of COVID-19? Perhaps, Lewis, if I start with you. Well, the first one is keep active. Uh, active 
psychologically and physically. Um, engage uh, with your family and um, learn how uh, do you live your family life in a very different way, very closely to each other. Um, uh, the other is support your community in the best way you can. Um, I think these um, these three things are, are the critical ones that we have to develop during the crisis. Wonderful. And what about you, Sebastian? What are your three top tips? I think I, I would largely mirror what what Lewis was saying. I think you need to uh, find ways to retain a sense of social connection at a time of isolation uh, uh, because, you know, while this may be a time of isolation, it is no time to feel alone. And I guess we're lucky in many ways that we have the capacity to stay connected to one another. Uh, I think uh, one of the other things that um, the government could be doing is to help people um, enable themselves to take actions. So again, this is about um, assisting people to achieve that sense of personal autonomy. And whether that is doing the things that Luis said uh, or other things, it's about making it um, as as boosting the sense that uh, at a time when many of us feel as though we're not in control, we do have some level of control as well as some level of social connection and i think um, that's what's really critical uh, sebastian uh, so uh, apart from what you said i'm thinking about what what can i uh, advise uh, the government is uh, to be in touch with experts in logistics we need logistics um, we already know quite a lot about the epidemiology and uh, it has happened in other countries, yeah, but that you end up by having a major weight of epidemiologists providing advice. It's critical to have good people in logistics. And the other thing is we, we decided, my wife and I, to call a friend every day. So uh, we are just going through our whole uh, listing, phone listing, and calling one person a day just to talk to him or her and know how they are doing. But you, you haven't called me yet. You haven't called me yet. Maybe I'm under. Uh, uh, oh well, I'm under R for I'm under R for Rosenberg. So that's a long way down. <laughs> well, look, I think that sounds like excellent advice uh, to pick up the phone and to talk to your friends. I mean, part of the problem is that we talk about social isolation. Perhaps we should be talking about spatial isolation because it's we really want to make sure that we maintain that social contact with with our friends and with our family, even despite uh, everything that's going on. So thank you so much to both of you for joining us today on a really important topic uh, unfolding in this crisis. So many thanks, Sebastian. Thank you very much. Thanks, Lewis. Thank you. Listeners, if you want to let us know what you thought of the discussion or share your ideas for future podcasts with us, please reach out. We're on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum, that's Apps Policy Forum, or send us an email, podcast at policyforum.net. And as we've just heard on the podcast, staying together and having a community to support one another is now more crucial than ever, which is why we'd like to invite you to join our community. You can find us on Facebook 
as Policy Forum Pod. It's a great space to have conversations with the other listeners and with our presenters, and you'll also have the exclusive opportunity to listen to our Ask Policy Forum podcast, where you get to ask us all the questions. I hope you have got something out of today's episode, and if you did, please don't forget to subscribe. It's super easy to find us. We're on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite pods from. And whilst you're on it, you might also want to leave us a review. And if you or anyone you know are struggling, you can contact Lifeline or Beyond Blue. Links and phone numbers for both organisations are in the show notes. And we've also included links to a couple of specific resources related to looking after your mental health during the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll be back next week with another episode of Policy Forum Pod. But until then, from me, Martin Pierce, take care of yourself, take care of each other and cheerio for now. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.